You're listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on services and events at our Simpsonville and Greenville locations, visit us online at therenovation.church. Today's message is presented by our Greenville teaching pastor, Matt Humphrey. We are starting a brand new teaching series. Um, Throughout December, we told you that as a church, one of our burdens was we wanted as a church to be reading scripture together throughout the year. And so we created a a reading plan. Um, It's five days a week, one chapter a day. So it's not like a super deep dive. I've seen some reading plans that are the entire Bible in 30 days, which is just bonkers. Um, I did the math. It's about like two to three and a half hours a day. So uh, my notes are just not working. That's cool. We're just going to wing it today. Um, But you're like, that's scary. but we, uh, we, we felt like one of, the, one of the awesome things is that one of the ways that God speaks to us is through his word. And what a cool thing is that as a church, that we are all united reading the same scriptures together every single day and God is continuing to speak to us. And so if you didn't start yet, you're five chapters behind. That's not much. You can make that up in about 10 to 15 minutes, okay? So uh, in the lobby on your way out, there's a bookmark. Um, Want to encourage you, encourage you to be a part of this reading plan that we would posture our hearts um, reading God's word together. And so my notes just started working. So cool. So you don't have to endure that. Um, but we are starting uh, in the gospel of Matthew. So if you are new to scripture, that is the very first Uh, book of the New Testament. We are going to be going through, uh, not chapter by chapter like we did through Ephesians. We're going to be kind of going in a bit of a chronological order through this, uh, hitting some highlights along the way. Um, But before we do that, uh, we talk about this idea of like, why are some books called like the letters or why are some called a gospel? Like, what does that actually mean? Uh, and I'm about giving us context and hearing from people that can explain things better than I. So with that in mind, before we jump into Matthew's gospel, let's have a better understanding of what that word means. So we've got a quick video for you to listen to, and then we'll jump into the text today. So take a look at this. If you know any Christians, or if you happen to be one, you've probably heard the word gospel as a kind of summary of Christian belief, connected to phrases like, God loves you, or Jesus died for your sins. But over time, religious words like gospel can lose their power and meaning by becoming too familiar. So let's take a moment to rediscover what this important word, gospel, meant to the people who wrote the Bible. Gospel translates the Old Testament Hebrew verb, biser, and the noun, besorah. The Greek New Testament equivalent is euangelion, which is a compound word. Eu means good, and angelion means announcement. All of these words mean good news, but what kind of news? Well, in Hebrew, biser is what we might call national news, or a royal announcement. Like when King David hears a messenger biser that his army was victorious in battle. That means he still rules on his throne over the people of Israel. And after David dies, his throne is passed on to Solomon, his son. And when he was inaugurated as king in Jerusalem, a herald spreads the Besorah, that a new ruler is in charge. But after Solomon's death came a bunch of bad news kings, whose corruption led their nation into self-destruction. 
This is why the prophet Isaiah announced the good news that one day the God of Israel would come as the cosmic king to confront all corrupt and violent kingdoms and restore his rule over all nations. And so, when Jesus of Nazareth hit the public stage, he continued Isaiah's gospel when he went around announcing the euangelion of God's kingdom. Jesus claimed that God was restoring his reign over his people Israel and over all nations, and he was the one bringing it all about. Now, the euangelion about a new king in charge means a new way of life. Jesus said that living in God's kingdom meant following him by putting down the sword and seeking peace through radical forgiveness and generosity, even toward your enemies. His good news required people to make a decision. This is why Jesus took his euangelion to Jerusalem to confront the corrupt and violent kingdoms of his day. But he challenged them in a surprising way with the power of God's generous love. As Jesus was being executed by his enemies, he received his crown and was mocked as a fake king. But he displayed true royal authority by forgiving his tormentors. Jesus was the one in charge that day, giving his life for the sins of others. And then, a few days later, everything changed. Jesus rose from the dead as the true king, whose love is stronger than death. He appeared to hundreds of his followers and told them to spread the euangelion, that all authority in heaven on earth now belongs to him. And they did share this good news all over the ancient world. They did it by writing the four accounts of Jesus' life that are the gospel. That is, they tell the story of how Jesus brought God's kingdom, how he lived for others and died for their sins, and then was raised from the dead. Jesus' followers also shared the good news by simply talking about it. This is why Peter and Paul, or Priscilla and Aquila, traveled all around sharing the royal announcement. While it might look like the rulers of our world are in charge and can do whatever they want, the good news is that the crucified and risen Jesus is the true Lord of the world, the real king of all creation. And in Jesus' kingdom, things are different. It's where the real leaders are the servants, because the last are first, and the first go to the back of the line. It's where the hungry are fed and the homeless are welcome, because love is the most powerful reality of God's kingdom. And this good news is not easy to believe. It actually sounds kind of crazy when you first hear it, but something happens when people tell the story of Jesus and start living like he really is the king of the world. That's when this gospel becomes the best news that you've ever heard. Okay, so in Matthew's gospel, in his declaration, right, of this good news of the kingdom, uh, we have to, today's kind of a setup day, but so we have to understand the, the purpose behind it. And Matthew is writing his good news, his, his gospel, explaining who Jesus is specifically to a, to a Jewish believing audience. And what he's trying to point out is as we looked through December, as we looked at the names of Jesus and how the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, uh, we see that he's, he's the, the key word in Matthew is fulfilled, is this idea that he's explaining to the Jewish people three kind of principles in this. One, uh, that Jesus is the uh, Messiah, that this, the person we've been waiting for for thousands of years, that Jesus is that Messiah, the one who came from David's descendant. 
the second thing that he actually, he doesn't say specifically, but he hints at with a lot of imagery in the way that the, the gospel is arranged is this idea of Jesus being like a new Moses. Uh, because you, you even see it, um, there's an intro and an outro, basically, and then there's five main sections, just like the five books of Moses in the beginning of the Old Testament. Uh, just like Moses went up on a mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, we're going to look in just a minute that Jesus goes up onto the mount to give the Sermon on the Mount. As Jesus uh, passed through the waters of baptism, like Moses passed through the, the waters of the Red Sea when it was parted, there's all of these similarities that say, hey, this is like a better Moses. This is a new Moses who, like Moses, helped deliver God's people out of slavery. Jesus is going to be the one to deliver all of humanity out of the slavery of sin. And then the third thing that we see is that um, Jesus is, um, is Emmanuel, of course. It is God with us. So we, we see this, this structure kind of played out, but we have to remember, he's talking to specifically to Jewish believers that, hey, all of the stuff that you've known in the Old Testament, Jesus is the fulfillment. In fact, there's 68 different references to the Old Testament that Matthew makes and 23 specific prophecies that he's like, hey, here now, Jesus fulfilled this. So with that in mind, uh, we're going to jump in. Uh, we're not going to go chapter by chapter. Like I said, we're going to start in uh, chapter four. So if you have a copy of the scripture, we're going to be there. Uh, Matthew one was some genealogy, the announcement of Jesus. Matthew two, remember the, the wise men, the magi visit him when he's born. Matthew three is uh, John the Baptist comes onto the scene, the baptism of Jesus. Matthew 4, Jesus tempted in the wilderness, and now we see the start of his ministry after that moment. Uh, so three things we're going to pull from this as we go through the text today. Is, first thing is this, is that the invitation of Jesus, we have to remember, is that it's not just to a, a set of beliefs, but it's to a way of life. The invitation from Jesus is not, hey, here's a set of things that you just need to believe and tuck in your heart. The invitation from Jesus is to a way of life. Now, yes, there are beliefs, there are core values of what we believe as Christians, as followers of Jesus. But we have to remember, it's not just to a set of rules and regulations. Jesus invites us to a way of life. And we see that in uh, Matthew 4.18, the way that he calls his first disciples. So follow along if you have your copy of the scriptures. Verse 18 it says, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. And they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. You're like, immediately, that sounds kind of weird. Is he going to catch them with a net, with a hook, with a bait? What do I? All right. At once they left their nets, though, and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. And Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, fishermen, this was not like a dead-end job, that they had nothing else to rely on. And so opportunity presents itself. You're like, yes, I don't want to work this job anymore. In fact, many fishermen in Galilee would, would make a decent living more than some other people. So why, why was this radical response? Uh, we see as a, as a rabbi uh, that people would often... In, in order to be a rabbi or to be a disciple of a rabbi, they would choose the rabbi. But here Jesus chooses, hand selects um, his disciples, 
hand selects people that no one else usually would probably pick. But he picks them and he's inviting them into a way of life. You would follow a rabbi so closely that the expression was that even you hope that the dust of the rabbi would, would get on your clothes. Is that you would do what they did. You would say what they said. You would teach the things that they teach. You would, you would learn their way of life. And so Jesus is, is contrasting that here because it's not merely passing on the teaching, but Jesus is calling his disciples to be with him, to do life with him. And their response is not like a casual one foot in, one foot out. Their, their response is a radical abandonment of what they know and do and how they provide for themselves. It was, this, it was an honor for them to be selected, and it was a complete abandonment of their way of life, meaning that the thing that Jesus presented them with was greater than what they were accustomed to. It was greater than their comfort. It was greater than their normal way of life. Jesus was inviting them into something so much greater, and that's the invitation that you and I have as well. You know the most common verb that's used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke? is the word be. It's not, it's not a bunch of rules and regulations. Jesus is like, hey, you gotta play this part. You gotta act this way. You gotta do these things. Yes, as we follow Jesus, our life is transformed, but the overwhelming used verb in the entire gospel of Matthew is the word be. Because Jesus is teaching us who he's called us to be. It's a way of life. It's not a set of things to do it's about a way of life that's not apart from the person of Jesus. We do life with him. Let's keep going. Verse 23. It says, uh, Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. Now, it's important to note the people that Jesus is interacting with right here, because these are not like the religious elite. These were not the super well-to-do. These were not the wealthy. These were not the political figures. Who is he dealing with? He's dealing with the least of these. He's dealing with those that were dejected, those that had been outcast, those that had conditions, those that were, that were uh, cast aside from normal society. You're gonna start a political grassroots campaign to start your kingdom. You're gonna go to some influential people probably. But Jesus, day one, as he starts his ministry, he goes to those that are hurting, that are broken, those that are in need of a miracle. And what's, what's uh, the second truth that we're going to pull from this is that the conduct of the kingdom flows from the character of the kingdom. Now, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a lot of instruction about how to live our life. Yes, he does. It's about, hey, you should do this as you follow me. This is how you should live your life, how you should pray, how you should give, how you should fast, all of these like things to do. But as he starts out, as we read the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter five, it doesn't start with the things to do it starts with the character of those who are part of the kingdom. It starts with this, hey, the character is what dictates the actions. Because think about it. Who are the people that were hypocritical? It was the religious. 
It was the people who had the actions without the character. And here Jesus is establishing his kingdom. He says, in my kingdom, he first establishes the character. And the character dictates the conduct and not the other way around. So let's go through this. We're going to go kind of verse by verse, kind of break some of these down. But these are the the Beatitudes. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1. We're going to go through this. It says, now when Jesus saw the crowd, he went up to a mountainside and sat down and his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. The word used here to mourn is one of the the strongest words for for mourning in the Greek. It's a word for mourning the loss of a loved one. It's this this anguish, this deep angst, this this mourning. Now think about it. He's, He's the ones that he's talking to, uh, the ones that are in this crowd are more likely some of the ones that he had just healed. Those that were dejected, those that were poor in spirit. And he says, hey, in my kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, we actually, we, the thing that we mourn is the, the utter depravity that in our sin, we are dead. That's the, the place for mourning is not You come into the kingdom if you've got enough in your bank account or based on who your parents were or or, or based on how many times you attended church, how many times you've gone through reading your Bible. He's saying, hey, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. The starting place that he establishes his kingdom, this, this this mantra, this, 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 this characteristics are those that are poor in spirit, that we realize that we are spiritually bankrupt, that there is nothing that we can do to fix our sin, right? Is everyone sinned in here, right? Make sure, yeah, that's all of us, right? All of us, sin entered, we're dead. We're, we're spiritually poor, that we needed Jesus to step into our story to do something about it, to change us, to give us life, and to give us hope. He's saying the blessed are those that realize our spiritual bankruptcy, that we realize that we have nothing, and that this is God allows as a path and not the final destination of grief. Second Corinthians says that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and, leads, uh, and leaves no regret. Let's keep going. Verse five, blessed are the meek for they, oh, sorry. I mean, uh, I totally skipped verse four, didn't I? All right, verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Uh, We talked about that a little bit. we, We mourn and grieve over our sin. The longer you and I follow Jesus, the more we should be frustrated, bothered, and even disgusted with our sin. The more we follow Jesus, our sin should bother us to the point where we we are so frustrated. And not this self-deprecation way, but but that our like his kindness leads us to repentance. That when we mess up, when we fall, that we run to Jesus. That he is the source of our healing, our forgiveness. And the, the thing that we mourn, the longer and longer we follow Jesus, we get frustrated and we get like overwhelmed by our sin. And it should, the closer we get to the cross, the more we want to bring that stuff to the light. Uh, Verse five, blessed are the meek 
for they will inherit the earth. Meek doesn't mean being a doormat. Meek means strength under control. Uh, they had a hard time recognizing this idea of meekness because uh, in the Greek, they couldn't separate it from the idea of being a servant. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was countercultural to them. So this idea of meekness uh, is, is our willingness to control our desires um, and our rights and our privileges. It's this idea that we submit ourselves under authority, that we willingly put other people first, that it's not just um, like self-deprecating, but it's this idea that we walk with humility, that we humble ourselves. Uh, we model Jesus in that. It says that we, they will inherit the whole earth. It's also a nod back to the Old Testament with the promised land. Uh, let's keep going. Verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, most of us in this room, our idea of hunger and thirst has like a couple of hour timestamp on it, right? Your, your hunger is like, oh, I haven't eaten since breakfast. We don't understand true hunger. Maybe you were fasting once, maybe you went on a camping trip and you forgot to pack. I don't know what it was, but we don't have a great understanding of hunger because we live in a, in a world that we don't even have to hit three zero on the microwave. We just hit the 30 second button because it's faster, right? Am I the only one? Okay, but think about it. We don't live in a culture that when you're hungry, you go out and you chop firewood and you gather firewood. You bring it back and you build a fire. You go out and you pick wheat. You take the wheat. You're like, I don't even know what wheat looks like, right? I, I see it on a, on a package of bread, but you take the wheat. You, 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 you do what you got to do to the wheat. You grind it up. You turn it into flour because the words escaped me. You turn it into flour. You make the flour. You let the, flour, you let the, you let the, the, the bread rise and you take the, or the dough rise and you put the dough in the oven and you bake the dough. Like we don't understand that kind of hunger. It's like we, we can order food from our phones and it shows up at our doorstep. And we don't have to see the person. Just drop it and leave. Because who wants that kind of interaction, right? But so when we say like hunger and thirst, it's not like it's this deep longing of us. It's, it's something that's easily satisfied. But in a culture that understood hunger and thirst... In a culture that understood that, that, that guttural longing, that, that your, your, your body aches for food. He's saying, hey, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for right standing, for right side up living, for the things of God, for the things of his kingdom, those that hunger and thirst for more of the work of the Holy Spirit in them, they will be satisfied. My, my kids, you'll, they'll eat a meal and like 30 minutes later, they're hungry again and I don't understand. I'm like, I gave you food, you should be full and now you're not satisfied again. Like they're, they're vortexes, right? They're always wanting snacks. We don't, like you eat a meal and you're, you're satisfied for a moment, but what happens? You get hungry again, right? The hunger and thirst for righteousness is that we will be filled, that that will be satisfied. That's why the thought about the woman at the well when Jesus talks about living water and not having to thirst again was, was so like appealing to her. She wanted that water. Why? To never have to thirst, to never have to, that idea of complete and total satisfaction. We don't have anything on earth that does that, right? We, we have nothing that ever fully satisfies us on planet earth, right? The deep longing in our hearts 
the only one, the only thing that can ever truly satisfy and not disappoint and not have it come up again is the person of Jesus. I love what C.S. Lewis says. It says, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was not meant for this world. You know, there is, there is God-sized voids in our life that we can try to fill it with everything else, but it will never satisfy. It's like you, you decided to eat a Hot Pocket that was disgusting, and you're still hungry, and you don't know why you did it anyways, and now your mouth is burnt, right? <laughs> like, it's, it's never going to satisfy. The, the things that you tried to fill that void with will never satisfy. He's saying, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, but they will be satisfied. Verse seven, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Um, I think the thing that is hard for us sometimes to be able to extend mercy to other people is because we first haven't understood the mercy that we have been extended. Remember, grace, grace is getting something that we don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We deserve death, period. The consequence of sin is death. We deserve death, but God, rich in mercy, sent his son Jesus to die for you and for me. That's mercy. He's saying, blessed are those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Because God has been so merciful to us that God has given us the very air in our lungs, we extend mercy to the world around us. That is the character of God that flows in us and flows through us. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And I've got to hurry. Um, Not the pure in ritual, um, not the pure in language or in conduct, not an outward ceremony. He said, blessed are the pure in heart. Jesus, the people that he confronted the most often were those that had purity of outward appearance but deceitfulness of heart. It was those who tried to play the part but actually didn't have the transformative nature of God working in them. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. You just got done having extended time with extended family over the holidays. You understand what being a peacemaker is. Okay, let's move on. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kind of evil things against you because of me. Underline that part, under because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Cultural context here. We live in the South where being a Christian is the norm, right? It's, it's, it's not, there, there's not a whole lot of persecution that you and I face. The long line at Starbucks is not persecution, okay? The look that your coworker gave you when you prayed for your lunch at your desk is not persecution, Okay? There are thousands of men and women around the world that give their lives daily that are brutally killed because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's persecution. Now, we may not face that kind of persecution, but we have to understand that there is, if we are following Jesus, if we are living out the Great Commission, He says, when you do encounter that persecution, rejoice because you're identifying with him. 
that blessed are those who are persecuted, not because they're being a jerk, not because you're rude, right? Persecuted because we identify with Jesus, because we are being like Jesus, not because we're being rude. There's a, there's a clear boundary there. That's not called persecution. That's just called people don't want to be around you. Persecuted because of him. And then lastly, number three, is that if we have been transformed, that my life should look like it. So he establishes these, these beatitudes. He's saying this is the character of the kingdom. Those that, that, that have the kingdom, this is, this is the, the, the posture of their lives. That this is how our character should be. And out of that character should flow the conduct. And the first thing he says after that, very well-known passage. You, you're probably familiar with it. Verse 13 says, you are salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds And as a result, glorify your Father in heaven. Now, Monday night, um, there's an important college game on, right? We know Michigan's going to win. It's cool. Uh, Now, my father-in-law is a diehard Michigan fan. And what's interesting is as you lead up to a World Series, to a national championship, to a Super Bowl, you realize that you didn't know some of your friends were fans of one of those teams that just happened to be in the finals, right? Right? You're like, since when are you a Michigan fan? I've seen you wear three other jerseys this year. Come on, you, you bailed on the Gamecocks because we kind of, some would did. And then like, you've jumped around teams. Why is it that we have bandwagon fans? That hey, when, when the season's great, when, when, when things are, are going well, you're, 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 you're loud and proud, but, but in the off seasons, you're just kind of, you're, you, you're not really wearing your Michigan gear. Now, I say this because in the exact opposite way. If, if we've been transformed by the work of the gospel, our life should look like it. And what I see a lot of times is that when life is good, we do our own thing. The pen of the authorship of our life is in our hands. But when life is hard, that's when the jersey comes out of the closet. Oh, I follow Jesus because he's my everything because he's all I got right now. If we've been transformed, it doesn't just transform us when we're in the valley. It transforms us when the mountaintop and it transforms us everything in between. It's not just, oh, I, 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 my life is in chaos and so I need, I need Jesus to fix it at this point because I've had it in my hands and now I'm finally willing to relinquish it just until honestly he gets it back in order and then I'm gonna take over it again. He's saying that if your life has been transformed if the message of the gospel, like the life of Jesus, like divides time, AD and BC, like it divides the way that we count time. If it has transformed you, your life should look like it. He's saying, hey, you're called to be salt. What does salt do? Salt is valuable. People were sometimes even paid in salt. That's why we have the expression that they're worth their salt. Salt with was precious. Salt added flavor to things. No one wants bland food. 
Salt preserves. That's why we have bacon. Praise God, right? We have bacon. Salt is a healing agent. Salt is an antiseptic. Salt, he's saying, betters things. He's saying, hey, the comparison is you're called to be salt. You're not salty in the wrong way, salty in the right way. You're called to add flavor wherever you go. You're called to be healing wherever you go. You're called to preserve. You're called to, to add. You're called to be valuable. Our life in following Jesus, if we've been transformed by the message of the gospel, then our life should look like it. He's saying you're also light. Light illuminates. Light brings safety. Light brings clarity. But every light has a source. And Jesus said that he is the light of the world. And so if, 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 if we have been transformed by the message of the gospel, then does our life look? His first declaration is that, hey, if you're a part of the kingdom, you're salt and you're light. So look at the world around you. Are they being impacted by the way that you add value? By the way that you illuminate? By the way that you reflect the work of Jesus in you? So my question for us this year, my, my hope and prayer for myself is, Lord, where, where does my heart need to change? Where do I need to make more room? Where do I need to, I'm reading these things, I'm like, I, I would love to, to like, to say that is absolutely 100% always true. That I'm constantly hungering and thirsting for righteousness. That I, I, I want to constantly like, make Jesus the forefront of every word, of every thought, of every action. Lord, where, where do I need to change? Where do I just need to be more disciplined of spending time in God's word? How do I need to be a better reflection of the transformative nature of the gospel in me and through me to the world around me. So church, we pray with me. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've invited us to do life with you. Not just do life on the sidelines with a series of rules and regulations, but because you have transformed us, because you have invited us into your kingdom, you allow us to do life with you, following you, not as this destination, not to get to this moment when we can say we've figured it all out, we've arrived, but it's a daily journey. Because the closer and closer we get to the cross of Christ, the more we have a realization of the sin in our life. And Lord, we want to be a people who are transformed. We want to be a people, Lord, who share the work of what you've done in us to the world around us. So Father, I pray that this year would be different than any other year. Not just because it's January and we make audacious goals and aspirations, but God, we want to be transformed by your spirit. God, you are the only thing that satisfies fully. Help us to be people who are found in your presence, who are found in your word, and who are found going out into the world and declaring the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And we ask all of this in your mighty and holy name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Renovation Church Sermon Podcast. 
find out more about following Jesus and building His kingdom at therenovation.church. 